You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we will delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation, the financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to TC Podcasts On The Go. I'm Anatole Mani, Program Director for Toronto Centre. Today, I'm in Toronto, Canada, and have the pleasure of spending time with Dr. Diane Sachs. Dr. Sachs is the former Environmental Commissioner of Ontario and is an environmental lawyer writing, interpreting, and litigating on Ontario energy and environmental laws. Our conversation today will focus on climate risk to the financial system, a climate crisis. Welcome, Dr. Sachs, and thank you for taking time to sit down with me today. Good to be here with you. Okay. So, Dr. Sachs, we're here to talk about uh, the climate emergency. And in much of your writing and uh, your works, why do you refer to the situation as a climate emergency? To bring home the urgency of action. Uh, The basic science of climate change has been well established now for more than 30 years. It's been nearly 30 years since the countries of the world agreed to an international treaty, the International Framework Convention on Climate Change, in which all the countries of the world agreed that it was essential for human welfare to keep global heating below two degrees. And since that time, what we've actually done is double the climate pollution in the atmosphere. And as a result, we've given the world a fever. We've now reached the point where, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, I think the largest scientific collaboration in human history, the work of thousands of the top scientists for 30 years, uh, with the approval of the countries of the world, we've got, if we want a stable climate, only about 10 years left to cut our fossil fuel use in half. That's an enormous challenge. And if we don't do it, the consequences are going to be overwhelming. We have a bit of a sense of what's coming from the COVID crisis. If you throw your mind back to ancient history, early March this year, um, people were still leaving on March break holidays. People went on cruises. People were still flying. Most people were still assuming that, you know, that bad things are happening to other people, but nothing bad is going to happen to me. And it's reflective of how poorly we understand the power of exponential change. By that time, the virus had been around and known for months, but the numbers still looked low to most people in most places until they didn't. Well, the climate crisis is the same. Exponential change looks really slow for a long time, but if you wait to act until it's overwhelming, the pain, the cost, the destruction is enormous and it's really hard to catch back up. 
A lot of the international reports talk about things that will happen by 2050, things that will happen by 2100. And honestly, I have never met a politician who really gives a damn about 2100. They don't expect to be alive then. They certainly don't expect to be in power then. They don't expect to be in power in 2050. And so it's, they really tend not to take this seriously. But for anyone who cares about small people, do you have any small people that you care about? I do. <laughs> well, I do. And in their lifetime, 2100 is likely to happen in their lifetime. 2050 is going to happen when they're still hopefully young parents. And so we're, we're talking about going outside the range of any human experience while my grandchildren are still fairly young. The emergency is coming into focus because of the work that's been done by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and thousands of other scientists, and they affect everything. The climate crisis is a threat multiplier for war, for hunger, for water stress, uh, loss of food quality, food security, not to mention the fires and floods and heat waves and wind and storms that we already see. We're in an emergency because we need urgent action or the pain is going to be overwhelming. We have a very small window left and we're throwing it away. Thank you, Dr. Sachs. The idea that uh, we need to address something that's uh, out of the range of human experience is a, an interesting phrase because that's what the pandemic was like as well. And so there's a lot of parallels that we need to think about. Diane. We first met during a briefing about your climate reports to the Ontario Legislature and the Financial Stability Board's Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. As such disclosures become more common and complete, one effect may be the divestiture from some carbon-related assets. What have your observations been about this disclosure regime? And how might these actions affect regulated entities like banks, insurance companies, and pension plans? The task force has really put its finger on the blindness of the financial institutions, the financial world. By and large, the financial community has continued to operate as if climate risks weren't going to happen to them, just like those people at the beginning of March who happily boarded their planes for their holidays and then got stuck. But the task force has done is to set out the rules and principles for identifying climate risks and opportunities. And what we're seeing as organizations begin to adopt the guidelines is that they have much larger risks than they knew. The Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, one of the largest pools of capital in Ontario, I think the largest pool of capital in Ontario, is a really good example. Uh, when they made their first effort to look at their carbon footprint, almost all of it came from investments they didn't even know they had. So you can't manage what you can't measure. And the climate crisis is an enormous threat to financial stability, which is exactly why the Financial Stability Board set up the task force on climate-related financial disclosures. As those disclosures become more common, better quality, more comparable, investors are moving. So we see that the divestiture campaign from fossil fuels is growing faster than any previous divestiture campaign. 
as far as I know, in human history. It's uh, well over $14 trillion already. Uh, we have, uh, every week we see more announcements of canny people, uh, some combination of financial risk and moral risk, agreeing to divest from fossil fuels. And every time they do, that reduces the argument for anybody else being invested in fossil fuels. Now, it helps. It's very hard to move money managers just with morality, even if what we're talking about is the future of human civilization. And and I, I will point out that that's what we're talking about here. I mean, the clearest expression of this was the report to the United Nations Human Rights Council last year, that we've now reached the point where the best case during the lifetime of today's children is widespread death and suffering. And the worst case is humanity on the brink of extinction. That's during the life of that small person you care about. So there aren't any bigger stakes. And of course, these are going to have financial consequences. And um, nevertheless, morality hasn't been enough. What is starting to be enough is that increasingly fossil fuels are bad investments. So uh, in 1980, uh, energy companies were 25% of the standard and poor um, 500, and they tended to make a lot of money. They, these, this is the richest industry in human history. They have been a real money pump, and it's very hard to get people to worry about morality when there's a lot of money to be made. And that's increasingly ceasing to be true. Anyone who's invested in coal over the last uh, 10 or 15 years has lost most of their money. Uh, the Energy sector is now well under 5% of the broader market. And increasingly, it's been a way to lose money, not make money. Uh, I think it was Jerry, Jeremy Grantham pointed out that over the last several decades, you would have made more money holding the rest of the market and no energy stocks at all. So if it's a business that isn't a good way to make money, and it's immensely destructive to our future, and it's increasingly recognized as having acted immorally, and there is an increasing risk of legal liability, because that's one of the other things that I've analyzed, is the risk of retroactive, I suppose, legal liability for the carbon majors, for the climate billions and billions of dollars in climate damage that they're causing. Well, increasingly, they're just not good places to put money which is why the divestiture campaign is catching fire. So those are um, important words to heed, uh, both if you're a financial institution or a financial uh, services supervisor. Diane, a recent World Economic Forum report noted the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic and climate changes are similar in terms of their global scale, the exponential growth of their impacts, the need for decisive action, the importance of scientific evidence, the risks to all parts of the economy, and the existential threat to the less affluent sections of society. Do you agree with this characterization? And if so, can you describe how? Well, I absolutely agree. Uh, the Except that the climate crisis will be much larger, much more pervasive, much longer lasting. We can imagine... I mean, if we're lucky in a year or two or three or four or 10 or however long it takes, having a vaccine against this particular virus, 
that could allow us to go back to more of the kind of life we had before. There is no comparable magic bullet for the climate crisis. And once carbon dioxide has been put in the atmosphere, there's no easy way to get it back out quickly. In fact, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is likely, a quarter to a fifth of it, is likely to still be there a thousand years from now, still trapping extra heat, still making things worse. And the kinds of impacts that we've seen already from climate, they lag about a generation. So it takes about a generation between the time that we put climate pollution into the air by flying or driving cars or whatever, and the time that we really experience the impact in storms and floods and, and, and heat and so on. But what is parallel is, first of all, as I said before, the lessons of exponential growth that looks really slow until it isn't. It's something that common sense, normal experience hasn't as equipped as well to, to understand. The second big lesson from COVID is that our way of life is much more fragile than we think. Physics, like viruses, do not compromise. They don't negotiate. They don't care about our opinions or our politics. And ignoring them leads to disaster. Hoping that it'll go away by itself does not work. A third big thing that we can and should learn from COVID is that expertise really matters. We've had a couple of decades of growing rejection of expertise and the assumption that whatever I want, what I feel like, what appeals to me is what matters. And in fact, again, physics doesn't care about that. And so we've had really vivid demonstration that expertise matters, that listening to expertise, following what's wise makes an enormous difference. And those who don't get away with it for a little while, and then there's a huge price. It's exactly the same for climate. I agree with you. It's also true that the pain is not equally shared. The poor, the most vulnerable, they suffer the most within countries and across countries. It's true for COVID. It's absolutely true for climate. But it's also true that no one anywhere is completely immune. So if we learn something from COVID, what we learn is we need to listen to the scientists. It's urgent and really pays to take early action. It works better. It costs less. Um, and another piece is that we need to restore compromised ecosystems in just the same way that people with compromised immune systems are much more vulnerable, more likely to get the disease, more likely to die from it. It's the same countries and areas with compromised ecosystems. Um, and even the COVID itself likely was contributed to by human destruction of the rainforests, taking away the places where the bats could live before. So we can change our habits and choose life, or we can continue doing what we're doing and pay an enormously heavy price, uh, which could be, in fact, putting all of humanity at, brink, at the brink. So those are really important things to learn. The big thing to remember is that the climate crisis is a little slower to arrive than COVID, but it's much, much bigger. So you've said it's more pervasive, more severe, and longer lasting. Uh, and you said, listen to the experts, 
early intervention in spite of our delays already and restoring ecosystems are all important considerations for businesses and regulators as we go forward. Finally, do financial services supervisors and regulators have a role to play in influencing the conditions that are leading to the climate emergency? And if so, what? Enormously important. Uh, Bill McKibben, founder of 350.org, wrote a really prescient article in the New Yorker in September called Money is the Oxygen That's Fueling Global Warming. And he's absolutely right. The financial industries have enabled the fossil fuel companies to double climate pollution, despite our knowledge of the facts in the last 30 years. They provide the money that has allowed these companies uh, to thrive and to ignore the consequences of their action. One of the things that Bill pointed out in his article was that while the fossil fuel companies depend heavily on enormous access to capital from the financial markets, the financial markets don't depend very much anymore on the fossil fuel companies. I already mentioned that from being one quarter of the general market, they're now well under 5%. Um, This year, Exxon is out of the top 10 of the S&P 500 for the first time since the index was created. Overall, financial institutions get less than 7% of their income from lending to the fossil fuel companies. So the financial institutions don't need the fossil fuel companies in nearly the same way that they used to. And that means that they really can look at the consequences of what they do. And that's where the idea about liability is really important because that puts front and center the risk that these companies and the financial enablers could be held responsible for the hundreds of billions of dollars of climate damage that we already have and the much more that's coming. There was a fascinating decision of the Canadian Supreme Court about 17 years ago that ruled that polluters owe a duty to future generations, that retroactive liability is appropriate, and that governments can force polluters to pay retroactively for their contamination, even when the government itself has behaved badly, even just to protect its own pocket. That retroactive liability for polluters is, in fact, a good part of the law. Now, we've seen in the tobacco litigation, and I think it's interesting to compare the the climate risk of liability to both tobacco and asbestos. Asbestos had an enormous influence on uh, market and lots of companies made a lot of money for lawyers for a long time. But if you think about it, the total amount of damages in the asbestos cases was roughly $100 billion. I mean, that's an awful lot of money, but it's tiny compared to the kind of damage that's occurring from climate disasters already. Natural disasters, so-called natural disasters, which we know are exacerbated by the climate crisis, cost more than $600 billion just in 2017-2018. And it's going up from here. So the amount of money that's at stake is truly stupendous. And I find it very difficult to believe that governments will want to make general taxpayers pay for that. 
as the cost rises and rises. So if they can't make taxpayers pay, and if they can't avoid the fires and floods and, and heat damage and uh, all those other things that are coming, they're going to have to make somebody pay. So who will they turn to? And for that, I think the tobacco litigation is a really interesting precedent. Again, in Canada, we had a major decision last year whereby the Quebec Court of Appeal ordered the tobacco companies of Canada to pay $15 billion in damages to Quebec smokers based on their conduct. Yes, they were selling legal products, just as the fossil fuel companies have sold legal products, but they deliberately, consistently, over a long period of time, hid the facts, actively attacked accurate science, lobbied extremely hard against health and safety regulations that would have protected smokers, and as a result, filled their own pockets with billions of dollars. And the court um, felt that that was sufficient to justify this enormous judgment, which immediately made the three tobacco companies uh, insolvent. The very same logic applies to the fossil fuel companies. We know that it's now been documented um, that for decades, the fossil fuel companies, particularly the oil companies, have known the science of climate change and have actively created doubt and delay, have actively attacked what they knew to be accurate science, have misled the public and legislators, have lobbied very heavily, and to this day are the largest obstacle to effective regulation of fossil fuels. So when this comes back to financial services supervisors, and particularly those who have to think about longer-term investments, pensions, for example. Um, we've, we've seen pension money has to be managed for the long term. You cannot manage money for the long term without paying attention to the climate crisis and the destruction of the natural systems on which our lives depend. These have financial consequences here already and much more to come. So, Financial services supervisors need to be demanding proper disclosure. And they have to take into account the risk of liability and the risk that the, these damages that so far have been laid off on everyone else will come to home to roost to the companies that are responsible. We know that 70% roughly of the climate pollution that's been emitted comes from about 100 companies. Uh, that's now been really well documented. And those hundred companies are still trading today on stock markets with valuations that are based on their so-called proven reserves, uh, basically on the assumption that all their reserves can be burned. And if all their reserves can be burned, we are into, well, we're way past two degrees. We're into massive physical destruction around the world. So one of two things has to be wrong. Either we don't care about a stable climate or the lives of our kids, and we're just going to allow all that stuff to be burned into hell with consequences, or the financial regulators are fooling themselves in allowing those companies to claim all those reserves as if they were assets that were going to be burned, because they cannot both be true. And it's time for financial services supervisors and regulators to insist that the fossil fuel companies tell the truth and that, frankly, the financial institutions tell the truth about their carbon footprints, the consequences of their investments and their loans, and what, um, what the consequences are. 
And if they do that, then money will move and money has to move because again, the good news is there are enormous opportunities. When there are massive technological changes, there are always enormous economic opportunities. There are going to be big winners and big losers. And we're already starting to see some of those changes. It's already cheaper to buy an electric vehicle than a natural gas vehicle if you count the cost of operation over five years. Um, in many markets, particularly people who keep cars more than five years or drive more than the average in, the, in a year, um, we see that in more and more places in the world, it's cheaper to build new solar and wind than it is to keep operating existing fossil fuel companies, uh, plants, electricity plants. Um, and again, if regulators ignore where the opportunities are, as well as the risks, they are going to be causing significant harm for which their kids will have a right to hold them accountable and maybe the rest of us too. The old ways of doing it are serving us really badly. We're at a pivot point. Financial regulators can do an enormous amount to turn us to a better path. Thank you, Dr. Sachs. Uh, any closing thoughts on our topic today for our listeners, Dr. Sachs? Anatole, I'd encourage all your listeners to go to my website, saxfacts.com, S-A-X-E-F-A-C-T-S. I've got lots of information there that's free for people to use and lots of other places, links that they can get information. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Thank you for having me on. And I encourage everyone to seize the moment uh, and see what else we can do right now. There's lots of great tools out there to learn more. One of the ones that I'd certainly recommend is Climate Interactive which gives everyone a chance to try out what kinds of solutions would actually make the kind of difference that we need. And it's free as well. Thank you, Dr. Sachs. I want to give our listeners first notice of the upcoming uh, climate change community of practice, taking a more in-depth look at climate risk to the financial system, supervising in the new normal on June 23rd. Watch for our next email. I'm here today in Toronto, Canada with Dr. Diane Sachs. Thank you, Diane. My pleasure. You've been listening to Toronto Centre Podcasts on the go. Thanks for joining us.